If we haven't met before, my name is Drew. Uh, My family goes to first service back row, so I have probably not met many of you, and I might be an unfamiliar face. But uh, my kids get up early, so we need church by 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Um, But it's good to be with you all this morning, and if you are a guest, thank you for being with us. Uh, Last time I was able to preach at Mission Point was in the fall, and I was told that I could preach on whatever I wanted, which which was great. Um, but apparently I took it a little bit too far and I needed to be reined in a little bit. Um, so I've been a, given a totality of six words to preach on this morning. So uh, you may get out of here really, really early into that lunch reservation. So no, not at all. Probably not. But uh, nice thinking. Uh, six words this morning. And we're going to be continuing in our series, Play for Peace. Play for Peace. Uh, here's the real reason that I think I'm sharing this morning. Uh, about a month ago, Pastor Kondo and I were at lunch together at Oak and Alley, and uh, just two friends having burgers, and we were talking about the stuff of life, leadership, uh, conflicts, uh, relationships, family, COVID, all of it. Uh, apparently, I must have been doing most of the talking um, because about three quarters of the way through our conversation with uh, burger grease dripping from his chin, uh, Kondo looked at me and he said, you sleeping, bro? You sleeping? And I paused for a moment and thought about lying to my pastor and then said, no, I better not lie to my pastor. I said, no, man, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sleeping so much right now. Uh, and next day, a friend stopped me and goes, man, you look really tired. You okay? And, and the truth is, um, I hadn't been sleeping well anxiousness, stress, some bad habits that I had formed in my life had been crowding out my peace. And as good friends, they called it out. Uh, two weeks later, I get a email from Pastor Kondo. It says, hey man, uh, new series coming up, Play for Peace. I think you should preach in it. And it didn't pass me as ironic that my pastor knew and probably God knew that more than anybody, I needed to be the one studying, thinking about, relearning what it means to play for peace. We're going to be in Philippians 4 this morning as we continue our series. And uh, I was thinking about that word peace this week. And I I drew in my mind a picture of what peace looks like to me. Uh, You would never want to see one of my paintings. So this is just a mental picture uh, of what peace would look like to me and see if it resonates at all with you. So uh, peace for me um, is my three sons uh, playing on the ground. Uh, They're playing kindly, uh, peacefully, quietly. Uh, The fireplace is on. The fake logs are crackling. Um, My wife and I are sitting on the couch. We've got some light rail, dark roast coffee and mud love mugs steaming just a little bit. Outside, the snowflakes are falling very gently. There are no dings from the phone. There's no email to be responded to. There's no dishes to wash. There's no food to make. There's no clothes to wash. There's no house projects to do. There's no conflicts in any relationships. And there is no, 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 no COVID. Peace. Does that resonate? It does, but it's also a very false picture of what peace is because that's not reality. 
And it's also not biblical. Uh, Peace is not a lack of difficulties or a lack of conflicts or a lack of busyness or a lack of COVID. Peace in Philippians is best described as a settledness of the soul despite life's difficulties. A settledness of the soul despite life's difficulties. That is the peace that God offers through his redemption and his renewal of our minds. And so I kind of get the, uh, the peace part of this. But what about that play word? That struck me as odd, play for peace. Uh, here's the thing, I'm a really competitive person. If you know me, you know that. Uh, I don't play for peace, I play to win. And when I play to win, there is usually no peace involved. Um, Early on in my marriage, my wife and I thought it'd be a good idea to play board games together. If you're in that kind of like premarital stage of life, let me give you some advice they never gave us. Do not play board games together, okay? Uh, My wife, she's sweet, she's kind, her smile lights up a room, but when she gets in a competition, she's as bad as me. And after a few Yahtzee games together that ended with nothing but peace in our home, we decided board games bad idea. Because when we play, we play to win. It's competition. There's no peace. Well, uh, the truth is, um, when, when I thought about this title more, it, it started to click. Uh, play means work. Work for peace. It, it takes prayer. It takes thanksgiving. It takes discipline of your eyes and your ears and your mouth and your schedule to lead to peace. What we read here in Philippians 4 is written by the Apostle Paul. And he's in jail at the time with his life hanging in the balance. This is his last exhortation to the people of Philippi. And here's what he says. Play for peace. Or better yet, fight, 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 fight for peace. Be always vigilant about peace. Pray for it. Beg for it. Fill your eyes and your ears and your mouth and your schedule with things that lead to peace. If you have a copy of God's word, we're gonna be in Philippians 4 again this morning and we're sitting in this passage for a couple weeks. We're letting the words of God wash over our minds and our hearts as we review this passage together. I wanna ask if you're able to stand with me and we're actually gonna read Philippians 4 verses six through eight together as a way to get it to continually wash over our minds and our hearts together. So please read these verses with me. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. You may be seated.
Craig Rochelle, in his book, Winning the War in Your Mind, says this. Your mind is a battlefield. And the battle for your life is always won or lost in your mind. The two battles we're going to look at this morning and strategize for is found in verse 8. And it's the six words that I get to preach on this morning. Whatever is right, whatever is pure. Think rightly, think purely. Uh, I think it'd be good if we first start off by defining terms. What, are these, what does this even mean? So uh, right thinking, right thinking. My favorite definition I found this week from right thinking is in Longman's Dictionary of Contemporary English. You may want to bookmark that one. Longman's Dictionary of Contemporary English. You're going to love this definition. Here's their definition of right thinking. A right thinking person has opinions, principles, or standards of behavior that you approve. Ha, this is great news this morning I have for you. You and you alone set the standard for right thinking. Everyone else in the world is wrong. According to the Longman's Dictionary, you set the standard for right thinking. Can I get an amen on that one, right? Oh man, you did not want your spouse. You did not want your kids. You did not want your parents. You did not want your boss to miss this week. You set the standard for what is right thinking. Except, except that would be the opposite of everything we are taught in the Bible. Because if you or I set the standard for right thinking, then we are God. And sorry to break it to you, you are not God. And if Fox News or CNN or your curated Twitter feed set the standard for what is right thinking, they are God. And if your teacher, your counselor, your parents or your pastor set the standard for right thinking, then they are God. And if you are God or if I am God or if my news feeds God or if my pastor is God, then we have a created God, a fake God, an idol God. And those gods cannot provide ultimate peace. No, even the people in places that can provide good insight and can provide good thinking must fall under the authority of God and his word. Um, Maybe a better definition than the Longmans is this. Right is morally good, justified, acceptable. Morally good, justified, acceptable. Psalms eleven seven says this, for the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. God sets the standard for what is right. And if you fill your mind with God's truth, there will be no room for Satan's lies. It all goes back to the garden where Satan lies to Eve, where he gets her to think false thoughts about God He gets her to think wrong about God. And then she sees the apple. She desires the apple. She takes the apple. And instead of peace, she gets death. And that's what Satan's lies do to us. They give us wrong thinking. He lies to you about your worth and your bank account, your relationships, your looks. And his goal, not to give you peace, to steal your peace. 
Right thinking, God's truth. Wrong thinking, Satan's lies. Okay, so we've defined right thinking. What about pure thinking? Pure thinking. As Christians, when we hear the word pure, we tend to automatically think about all the things that are not pure. Um, It is not pure to fill our minds with immoral sexualized images or extreme violence. It is not pure to read horoscopes or some profane graphic novel. It is not pure to listen to explicit talk shows or podcasts. And it is certainly, most definitely, not pure to listen to country music. (laughs) Amen. Thank you. And all that is true, at least in my book. We should avoid things that fill our minds with impure thoughts. We should. Um, I can remember as a teenager, um, I was in youth group, and, and they showed us this movie called Hell's Bells, The Dangers of Rock and Roll. Anybody else ever get to see this? Okay, it's still out there, YouTube it. Uh, Hell's Bells, The Dangers of Rock and Roll. And it was all about how rock and roll was gonna fill our teenage minds with terrible and evil things. And there's some truth to that. But what did we do as teenagers after we watched that? Yeah, we went and looked up all the songs that they talked about in the movie to see what's all this fuss about, right? Um, I also went to Christian school uh, as a kid. I was one of those. Um, And we, uh, I remember one time we had an assembly called and that didn't happen very often, but there was this assembly called and the pastor got up on stage and he gave this talk about how we should never wear Abercrombie and Fitch, uh, about how we should never shop at Abercrombie and Fitch. And we certainly, certainly should never look at the in-store magazine at Abercrombie and Fitch. Where did everybody go after school that day? As teenagers, we headed to the mall to check out this magazine because what's all the fuss about? As curious teenagers, you tell us what not to think about and we begin to get curious. What is it that we're supposed to avoid? What is it that's going to tempt us? And should we avoid things that tempt us to think impure thoughts? Absolutely, 100%. But we cannot just spend our life avoiding all the places and all the sounds that could lead to impure thoughts. No, we're told here in Philippians, we have to pursue the peace that comes with thinking so purely that when those images or those sounds surround us, our mind is trained to not even think an impure thought. So what does pure mean? Pure means virtuous, innocent. Virtuous, innocent. Titus 1.15 says this, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. If your mind is so pure, you're not even going to see evil. Or or if your mind is so depraved that all it sees is evil, you may come across the same image, the same sound. And if you have a pure mind, you, you, you don't even notice the evil therein. But if you're so defiled, you're going to find the evil in almost anything. David Jeremiah put it well. He said, if you fill your mind with God's truth, there will be no room for impure thoughts. Right thinking and pure thinking are both fought for through saturating our hearts and our minds in God's word. Uh, This week, I reviewed the the beautiful masterpiece by C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters. I'm sure many of you have read it. It's a fictitious account 
of a, uh, a devil by the name of Screwtape. He holds a high position as one of Satan's tempters. And uh, in this book, Screwtape's job is to give his nephew Wormwood advice, methods for how to undermine God's word in the minds of believers and unbelievers alike. And uh, in this book, Screwtape says this to young Wormwood. It is funny, young Wormwood, how mortals always picture us as putting things in their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. In other words, the evil one's best strategy to keep someone far from God's peace is to keep God's truth away from them at all costs. The best way the devil can keep you from peace of God is removing truth from your heart and mind. This morning, I wanna take a look at an Old Testament character who has something to teach us about right thinking and pure thinking. This guy lived an epic life. Um, He was a young shepherd boy who protected his sheep by killing both a lion and a bear with his bare hands. Um, As a teen, he took some lunch to his brothers and there was this big Goliath guy, maybe 10 foot tall, and the king and all the army, they were too scared to fight him. But but David, as a teen, was like, I'll do it. God will give me the strength. And he went out there with his slingshot and, and one whip of that slingshot and he felled the giant. At 30, he became the king. He takes over Jerusalem, God's city. He brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, the center of worship. I mean, this guy was a champion warrior. On top of it, he played the harp. He wrote poetry and songs and psalms. This guy would have won Bachelorette over and over and over again. Uh, God called him a man after my own heart. A man after my own heart. He was the man. But that's not the story we're going to look at this morning. See, uh, David was also an adulterer and a cold-blooded killer. And sorry, David, but that's the story we're going to look at today. Because I think it has something to teach us about right thinking and pure thinking. We're going to be in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And many of us know this as the story of David and Bathsheba. I was reading that story again this week and just blown away by the craziness, the insane, impure, unrighteous thinking of David and the havoc, not the peace, the havoc it wreaked on his life and so many others. Um, You don't have to turn there this morning. I'm gonna mainly do a recounting of the story, but I would like to read the first couple verses of 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says this, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So here's David and it's wartime. And uh, we've learned he's the man when it comes to fighting wars, but David didn't go out to war. And we're not totally sure why. Uh, Maybe he had a good reason, but in the story, we're told that at least that day, he spent most of the day on his couch taking a nap. And after his day-long nap, uh, he decided to go up to the top of his palace on the rooftop to take a little stroll. And while he's taking a stroll, he happens to see a woman, Bathsheba, living up to her name, taking a bath. 
And instead of thinking, you know, I wonder how I could build a privacy fence for her family. He instead sends someone to go get her. And then in a gross abuse of power by David, Bathsheba becomes pregnant. Okay, that got bad really quick. But, but David, right? Man of God, man of God. He'll get it turned around here, I'm sure. Not so much. Uh, we're told in verse six that David sent word to Joab, who was the leader of his army. And he said, send me Uriah the Hittite. See, Uriah was Bathsheba's husband. And David's idea was to, to bring Uriah back, send him on a little couple's retreat together. One thing would lead to another and no one would ever know that this baby boy in Bathsheba's belly was actually David's. So now we're in Jerry Springer territory. But David's plan didn't work because Uriah said, no, no, I am not going to Bathsheba, my wife. Not when there's a war to be fought, not when there's a nation to be protected. I will not do so, David. So David goes to plan B. David's plan B the next day is to get Uriah drunk. And so he does it. He gets Uriah drunk and he says, Uriah, go go hang out with your wife. And Uriah says, no. Not when there is a war to be fought and a nation to be protected. So so David has to uh, go to plan C. And plan C is murder. Dateline special territory, murder. David sent a note with Uriah to give to Joab, the commander of David's army. And in verse 15, we're told what this note said. Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fierce and then withdraw him so that he will be struck down and die. What? This guy who had been so loyal to David, so loyal to the nation of Israel, carried his own death sentence back to the front lines of the battle. And this time, David's plan worked, kind of. Uriah was killed in battle. And David took Bathsheba as his wife. But as if we didn't already know it, the last sentence of chapter 11 says this. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. This man after God's own heart got so twisted up in his thinking that it led him to great wickedness. Craig Rochelle puts it this way. Either our thoughts are focused on what's eternal, life-changing, and true, or lost in the details of our temporary, selfish, false beliefs. Uh, David's story is the story we all live because of the fall. Just like Eve, right? David saw, David desired, David took. But this morning, remember, we're, we're talking about how can we fill our minds with right thinking, with pure thinking, so that we don't end up down a path like David. What can we learn from David that's going to lead us to pure and right thinking? A couple of things I want to highlight this morning. The first is, if you want a right and pure thought life, be in the right place. 
be in the right place. David was a king and he was supposed to be at war. And if he was at war, then he couldn't be with Bathsheba. Instead, we're told he spent all day on the couch. Maybe he was binging Netflix. Who knows? And then at night, you know, the time when people take baths, he goes outside for some fresh air and just happened upon Bathsheba. Be in the right place. Where are the right places for you? And I don't just mean physical places, but what are the things, the activities that get you in the right headspace? The things that when you do them, you feel God's presence. You learn more of God's righteousness and you experience less anxiousness. I'll tell you a few of my right places. One of them is between 6 or 6.30 a.m. on my couch, reading my Bible, journaling, and praying before my kids wake up. Could be 10 minutes, could be an hour, but that quiet time is precious. But, but oh, too often I decide to take sleep instead or to check my email or to make sure I get to watch the highlights from the game the night before. But if I want right thinking, if I want peace for that day, because I know conflict and difficulty is going to come, then devos and journaling in the morning is key for me. Because for me, implanting God's word in my heart first thing in the day heads me down the right track. For me, journaling is something I've picked up in the last few years. It just helps me be able to process my thoughts, to, to recognize who God is, to confess, to give him thanks, to write it all down and get it on paper. I find that to be so important for me. It's a right place for me in the morning, 6 to 6.30 a.m. on the couch, Bible and journaling. Um, Another right place for me is at 10.15 in bed with a book. At 10.15 in bed with a book. I'm very tempted to stay up late and watch the game or worse yet, to be on my phone in bed scrolling through social media, email, or my newsfeed. And when I do that, I almost always stay up way later than I should and fill my mind with stuff that does not lead me to peace. Um, I was happy to find out this week uh, that I'm not alone, that many of you share that same struggle. About 65% of adults admit to checking their their phones at night. And I think another 35% are liars. (laughs) Now, here's why it's bad. It's emotionally and mentally stimulating. Checking your phone late at night just keeps your brain awake and it keeps you thinking about things that keep you anxious. Uh, There is actually a a physical aspect of the phone as blue light and that really keeps you awake. Temptation is easier to give into when you're tired. You sleep worse, which leads to more anxiety and depression. For me, if I get in bed and read a book, preferably a spiritually focused book, I fall asleep quicker and I stay asleep longer. 10.15 in bed with a book is a right place for me. Another right place for me is the gym. Um, You can probably tell I'm no gym rat, I'm no bodybuilder, uh, but for me, some walking, some lifting, some basketball, something active ensures that I clear my mind And it helps me think clearly and pursue rightly. Bonus if I'm listening to a podcast that's spiritually focused. 
Those are right places for me. But what's the right place for you? What are the places that if you fill your mind with, you'll get right and pure thinking? Maybe you need to change the podcast or the Spotify playlist you listen to. Maybe it's the shows you watch. Maybe you just need to commit to regular attendance at church. Maybe it's at a restaurant with your spouse, ensuring that you get that good time together. What are the right and pure places that fill your mind with God's peace? Be in the right place. Second, if you want a right and pure thought life, be with the right people. Be with the right people. It amazes me through this whole crazy sequence that David never once sought his friends for input. Or if he did, he certainly did not listen. No one around him felt like they could say, uh, David, this just doesn't seem like what a man after God's own heart would do. David was on a power trip times a million. Nowhere in 2 Samuel does it say, and he sought his friends for their wise input. The only time we see David talking to others is when he's giving commands. Go get me Bathsheba. Bring Uriah back from war. Help me get Uriah drunk. Allow Uriah to get killed. David was either unwilling to surround himself with those he could listen to, and he was certainly willing, unwilling to seek accountability. Proverbs 19.20 says this, Listen to advice and accept discipline. And at the end, you'll be counted among the wise. Who are you surrounding yourself with? Are they worth listening to? Are you seeking wise input? I've heard it said before that you are the average of the five people you surround yourself with. Uh, If most of your friends listen to country music, you will unfortunately listen to country music too. If your friends watch The Bachelor, you'll watch The Bachelor. If your friends go to church, you'll go to church. If your friends memorize scripture, you'll memorize scripture. If I wanted to know about you, I could simply spend time with the five people you're closest with and probably know as much about you as getting to know you individually. If you want right thinking or pure thinking, be very strategic, very picky about who you spend the most time with. I recently read a study that said the people you habitually associate with will determine as much as 95% of your success or failure in life. And I'm going to take the liberty to rephrase the study just slightly. The people you habitually associate with in person or online will determine as much as 95% of the true peace you experience in life. We're blessed. Emily talked about it earlier. We have great places at Mission Point where we can ensure that we're surrounded with people headed the same direction we are. We've got Bible studies starting up right now for men and women. Get involved in a missional community. That has been so huge for my family to ensure that we have God-centered relationships. But it's not just the people you are most closely associated with. It's also the voices you allow to speak into your life. If I looked at your Twitter feed or your IG account, would I hear more from politicians, house decorators, and football players? Or would I see a steady diet of scripture and truth and positivity? If I looked at your browser history, would would I see you giving more into temptation or a, a steady diet of good articles read and videos that point you to the greatness of our God? 
Who you allow to speak into your life impacts the rightness and purity of your thoughts. Last week, uh, Kondo issued the last three challenge. He said, would you be proud to let somebody look at the last three books you read, last three sites you visited, last three anything? I want to issue the next three challenge. The next three challenge. Who are the three people that if you spent time with them, maybe it's over lunch, maybe it's a phone call, maybe it's a text or an email, but if you spent time with them, you know that you would grow closer to God and learn more of his peace. Write those names down. Make sure you contact those people in the next couple of weeks. People that you know are gonna draw you closer into the Father's arms. Write it down. The next three challenge. Be in the right place. Be with the right people. And lastly, if you want a right and pure thought life, be willing to confess. Uh, David messed up and messed up bigly. But in 2 Samuel chapter 12, God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David about his sin. (laughs) Nathan was that friend David could have used in chapter 11. Nathan came out and directly said to David, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Now, I sort of expected David at this point to continue down the path he was and and give some lies or deception. But God softened David's heart. And his response was simply, I have sinned against the Lord. No excuses, no blame shifting, a direct and simple confession. And the beauty is, God did forgive David right then, right there. Oh, there were consequences. There were consequences. Nathan told David that that firstborn son of Bathsheba would die. Not peace, but death. And he did die just a few days later. But God forgave. God forgave. And in fact, he did more than forgive. Do you know who the second born son of David and Bathsheba was? Solomon. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. Um, God was gracious to David. This week, my wife was studying this passage with me and she came to me and she said, do you know what Solomon's name means? Solomon's name means peace. The man of peace the son of peace, the one to bring peace to David and Bathsheba in the sorrow of their loss, the one to bring peace after the havoc of so much sin. (laughs) And you know who David's and Solomon's grandson's, 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 grandson was? The prince of peace, Jesus the one who died on the cross for your sins and mine, the one who took on the sin of the world so that we could experience everlasting peace, the one who, because of his sacrifice, allows our hearts to be renewed day by day by day and gives us the opportunity for peace here and peace for eternity. The Prince of Peace tracks his lineage 
back to Solomon, back to David and Bathsheba. And if you think that you have done something so heinous, so evil, that God could never forgive it, if you think that you're so far gone that you filled your mind with such impurity or such unrighteousness that there's no way God could possibly do anything with you, you're wrong. If God can give David the son of peace and the prince of peace, he can do the same for you. And he cannot just forgive but he can redeem. He can take all of that wickedness and evil that we all give into on a daily basis and he can turn it into something good, something good for you and something good for others. Peace that passes understanding. I wanna turn our hearts and our attention to one more passage this morning. Psalm 51 is a psalm that David wrote in reflection after all of this stuff with Bathsheba and with Uriah and with Nathan. He writes a whole psalm of repentance. I encourage you to spend some time today or this week reading Psalm 51 and letting it just saturate your minds and your heart. But there's a verse in here that I, that I wanna point us to because One of the things David recognized was not only that God would forgive him, but that God could create a pure and a right heart within him. Uh, See, you gotta be in the right place. And and yes, you have to be with the right people. And, And yes, you need to confess. And when you do confess, God can create in you a pure and right heart. Here's what it says in Psalm 51.10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God, I beg you, give me a right heart. God, I beg you, give me a right mind. God, I beg you to forgive and redeem and give peace. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to commune with the God of righteousness, the God of purity, the one who has done nothing wrong and yet reaches down and exchanges with us sin for righteousness that you're willing to create in us and to give us your righteousness in exchange for our sin. Lord, we thank you for that. We confess that we fall short. We fall short daily, but we know that you can redeem, that you can take our sin and turn it into good. We thank you for that. We thank you for Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the one who died on the cross for our sins to make all things new. Lord, we pray that you would help us this week to fill our hearts and our minds with things that point us to your righteousness, with things that fill us with pure thoughts, that we may see this world and all of its ugliness and wickedness and, and see it through the eyes of a redemptive father. God, we thank you this morning for your son. We pray that you'd help us to go and live in his peace. In your name, amen.